tuning in to Unlimited Hangout. I'm your host, Whitney Webb. If you are familiar with my work on the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, you are likely aware of at least aspects of the sordid history regarding the involvement of intelligence agencies, including the CIA, and child trafficking and sexual abuse. However, in my currently published work on Epstein, I wasn't able to cover every historical instance of the intelligence community's involvement in these dark activities, having only touched on well-documented abuse cases like the Franklin scandal and some lesser-known incidents that directly related to the same network of individuals or groups that Epstein later inhabited. But there is another related scandal that definitely deserves our attention, as it involves ties of the CIA to a nefarious cult that sexually and ritually abused young children, a horrific group that has historically gotten little media attention, with reporting on the incident in recent decades being almost entirely restricted to independent media. This cult, known as the Finders, briefly entered the national spotlight in the late 1980s and early 1990s, around the same time that the Franklin scandal and other intelligence agency-linked scandals of a different nature, such as Iran-Contra and the Promise Software scandal, were in the process of being quote-unquote investigated and covered up by U.S. government agencies. Years after the story was memory-holed by the media and the finder's ties to the government had been covered up by federal investigators, documents were released a few years ago in 2019 that have allowed some journalists to piece together more of the story than ever before. One of them, Elizabeth Voss, joins me today to discuss her recent series at Press News on the finders and their intelligence ties. Elizabeth is an independent journalist who has done considerable work on whistleblowers, intelligence agencies, and the Julian Assange case. She is currently a contributor to Mint Press News and has had her work published in several outlets, including Consortium News, where she co-hosts their See and Live program, and has published some great work there on intelligence-linked human trafficking scandals like the Detroit Affair. She has recently published the third installment of a deep dive into the Finder's Cult, putting together pieces of evidence that others have missed and that paints a truly horrific picture of what U.S. intelligence agencies have been capable of doing after decades upon decades of no accountability for their crimes and violations of both U.S. and international law. So thanks for joining me today, Elizabeth. Happy to have you on the program. Thank you so much for having me. Absolutely. So to start off, uh, reading some of these documents about the Finders case that uh, you include in your pieces, I actually found really uh, sickening. And that's coming from someone who has written about awful crimes, including pedophilia, uh, sexual abuse, the Epstein case, things like that for some time now. And I was really struck by not only how freaky and disturbing some of the things found at Finders properties were, but also the age of the children involved, because we're talking about children much, much younger than those who were involved in the Epstein case here. So it's on. it was honestly, you know, surprisingly for me, uh, hard to stomach. But I think that's also why the story is so important, uh, particularly given the fact that the U.S. government had some obvious involvement here. Uh, so first off, uh, I felt like I needed to say that uh, to let that serve as um, a warning for those uh, listening to this episode that may potentially uh, find this topic difficult to listen to because it may not be uh, for everyone. Uh, but with that being said, it makes sense, I think, to first introduce the events that led the story to break out into the mainstream media, uh, at least back in the late 80s, uh, meeting the arrests of uh, two men affiliated with the Finders cult in Tallahassee, Florida in 1987. Uh, so could you please give an overview of those men, that arrest, uh, the court case that followed, and how the Finders were treated by the media at the time? Absolutely. Yeah. So basically, in on February 4th, 1987, you had a, an individual uh, call the Tallahassee Police Department because they had witnessed some uh, about six, six children 
uh, acting uh, very unusual. They looked very dirty, unkempt, and one one record said they were acting like animals. And they were in the company of two men who were very well dressed at the same time. Uh, they were living out of a, a blue van. And so the, the caller basically was concerned about whether or not these were, you know, children with their parents and that type of thing. So they called the police in Tallahassee. The police responded. And the men, the two men, as you mentioned, uh, Douglas Ammerman and uh, Michael Hallwell or Houlihan, depending on which name he was using at the time, were, gave very evasive responses. They initially said that they were taking the children to Mexico for to a school for brilliant children. And the police found this very um, unusual. They didn't trust them. They, you know, they, they suspected that they could be trafficking these children and may, maybe have kidnapped them. So they uh, arrested them. Uh, Houlihan apparently dropped on the ground and pretended to faint and refuted, refused to answer any questions. And so initially, the Tallahassee Police Department, you know, looked at this as a potentially interstate trafficking incident. So they called around to various agencies in various states. They eventually identified that the men were part of the cult known as the Finders based out of Washington, D.C. And initially in the investigation, uh, from what I can tell, Tallahassee police did a really great job at trying to really look into this. They had, uh, you know, doctors who appraised the children as having been sexually abused. There doesn't seem to have been interference in that investigation in the first few days. Um, and But that only lasted for approximately a week because after the Washington, D.C. Metropolitan Police Department became involved, uh, there was basically this shift from, you know, looking at the, at the cult as potentially abusing children and also the allegations that came out around ritual abuse, which were widely reported in the press initially by, I mean, all of the papers of note that you would imagine, the New York Times, the Washington Post, national headlines you know, cult ritually abusing children, satanic abuse, all of these types of things. And it was, um, you know, really sensational. Um, and that isn't, that isn't to say that there weren't, that there wasn't a, an element of truth to that, but they really heightened those allegations at the expense of others. So, but about a week later, the DC police started to downplay all of those cult allegations. They started reframing the narrative, the finders as a, uh, you know, misunderstood hippie commune that were simply an alternative lifestyle community. And eventually, due to lack of evidence, the initial charges of, of child abuse against the two men were dropped because essentially they had they had been transporting these six children from D.C. with the um, consent of their mothers who were Finders members. And that was it took a little while for the uh, authorities to establish that these were children of the Finders members. And uh, basically... They didn't even look at allegate like any sort of prosecution for neglect. They didn't look at a whole lot of other things. The um, allegations of, of sexual abuse against these children that were recovered was walked back by other authorities, like uh, state authorities in Florida. And so, uh, relatively rapidly, you have a basically this reversal of the the um, official narrative. Uh, and so, basically, the charges eventually were dropped against the two men by about March of '87. So within, you know, a month, they were they were out, they were fine, and no one was ever prosecuted in relation to this case. There were finders properties in D.C. and in Virginia that were searched, and that's where we have, that's where uh, U.S. Customs agent, Special Agent Ramon Martinez comes into the story. Uh, he was at the, he participated in the searches of both the, uh, the finders' houses in D.C. and the warehouse that they had. 
And his reports basically blow the official narrative apart, which we can get to a little later. But, uh, you know, there were the evidence that they found, and this is included in the FBI vault documents, which are get basically, in my opinion, attempt to uh, bolster the official narrative. They, they, the stuff that's included versus the stuff that's redacted tends to be along the lines of, well, we never saw this evidence or, you know, we never were interfered with by the CIA. But nonetheless, they admit in those documents that the evidence was gone and that the descriptions of evidence were never found and that even the records of the records basically have been, were unusual. Like there were, there were things that were not signed that should have been signed, all sorts of stuff like that. So because of Martinez's account, which he wrote in uh, two doc- two customs memos that have, were later published by Ted Gunnarsson and some other people, that because of that and because those doc- customs documents made their way to some Congress people, uh, there was a lot of pressure building up by 1993 to have the case looked into because there were allegations of the CIA interfering. There were allegations that obvious criminal activity by the finders had not been uh, prosecuted or, or investigated uh, properly. And so the, you have in, in late 1993, a Department of Justice inquiry is launched. But the interesting thing about that is that when you actually look at the vault documents, you see that the DOJ says in, you know, in news reports at the time, okay, we've, we've got a special task force. We're going to look at this. We're going to get down to what happened. And of course, what in reality, what the documents reflect is the DOJ passing the investigation off to the FBI headquarters and the FBI headquarters then passing that off to the Washington Metro field office. And the Washington Metro field office is the one that's compiling all the documents, writing the synopses, communicating with the FBI director and that type of thing. Meanwhile, they're the same agency that was working with the MPD in the initial 87 investigation. So it's not a neutral party. And it's also a party which Martinez said in his customs uh, records had been basically kept in the dark as well. The evidence was not sent to them originally. So it's it, instead of it being this Department of Justice, you know, special task force that's that's going to overview and, and have a real check and balance on these other agencies, you have agencies that were initially involved investigating themselves in their own investigation. So but, you know, un, so unsurprisingly, you have the official narrative coming from that inquiry being that there was no evidence found that the CIA interfered in the finder's investigation in, in 87 and that there was no evidence of criminal activity found ever on the part of the finders, which is a direct refutation of the main allegations made by Ramon Martinez, which was, A, he saw evidence of severe, I mean, really serious criminal activity on the part of the finders, uh, and that the CIA then stepped in and rendered it an internal matter. And that labeled uh, the reports regarding the investigation secret um, and prevented the evidence from being reviewed by anyone. All right. So let's drill down uh, on the CIA ties a bit. So in your most recent piece, you go over uh, several key pieces of evidence that link the finders to the CIA. So given their involvement in the investigation and and their decision to declare this an internal matter, obviously that... uh, Uh, points to something, right? So if you wouldn't mind laying out some of the other uh, compelling pieces of evidence uh, that you noted regarding CIA ties to the finders, particularly the, uh, I believe it's pronounced PD family, uh, the apparent involvement of the CIA as the quote owners of the finders, uh, and also one of their funding sources. um, And, uh, you know, uh, if there was any other involvement uh, regarding not just the CIA, but other federal agencies and covering up the true extent of the finders crimes. Sure. Yeah. No, I mean, and first of all, just to give that context again about how serious this would be, if you had the the finders 
conducting the type of, um, you know, activities that Martinez says he witnessed and that that was then protected by the CIA. If that was made to, if that was allowed to become the public narrative, you would have a, you know, a United States agency of arm of government basically uh, protecting some of the worst crimes imaginable, really. So it, it was, would be very much in the interest, not only of the Central Intelligence Agency, but also other government agencies for that type of embarrassment to be avoided, right. if, you know, if it were true. So that's, you know, the beginning context. But the evidence for CIA involvement with the finders has a couple of different elements to it. Um, and as you mentioned, that's kind of broken down in my, in my latest article. The first is the relationship between uh, the founder of the Finders cult, uh, Marion Petty. I just pronounced his name Petty. I'm not entirely sure if that's correct. But he, uh, he claimed that his son was work, had worked for uh, the CIA front uh, Air America, which I know that you uh, covered very extensively in terms of mm-hmm. its, its relationship later as Southern Air Transport with Jeffrey Epstein and Leslie Wexner, which I found really interesting. Um, but basically you have Petty himself claiming that, that his son worked for them. You also have the FBI vault documents admitting that Marion Petty's wife, Isabel, worked for the CIA for 21 years, from 51 to 70, uh, no, from 50 to 71. And that's interesting. Um, in, in a couple of documents, they seem to write it as 61, and I'm not sure exactly why, but the most authoritative uh, reports I could find were that she worked until 71. They admit, this is, and this is, again, this is the vault documents. This isn't Martinez's allegations. They admit that she was given passports to restricted countries that could only have, basically the travel to which could only have been facilitated by something like the CIA or the State Department, like, uh, you know, in the height of the Cold War. So you have North Korea, uh, the USSR at the time, and North Vietnam, in, you know, during the Vietnam War. And the documents attempt to portray Isabel as a staff stenographer and basically call her an employee, so, you know, rather than like an agent or something like that. But it seems that very improbable that a simple staff stenographer would be going over to North Vietnam during the North Vietnam War and stuff like that. Right. So it's, that's really interesting. The other thing is that in re- some of these reports referring to those uh, passports, you have na- the name of the person receiving the passport redacted, whereas in er- everywhere else throughout these documents, uh, Isabel's name is not redacted because she had died long before any of these investigations took place. Um, the other thing about that that makes it interesting to me is that you have these passports being found in the Finders DC properties in 87, and you have them described by uh, Martinez, which, you know, again, basically suggests that he's being accurate in the evidence that he's describing, because then we have the same passports being described by Sergeant Stitcher and others in these documents. And I'll get into Stitcher uh, in a minute because he's really interesting and a key figure in all this. But you have the, so again, you have this admission that Isabel was given these passports, but it appears to me that there's a, there's a possibility that these passports were also being given to other finders members. And it's unclear as to how many, uh, because the, the, again, the name is redacted, but it suggests that that may have been somebody other than Isabel that was, that was also traveling on these passports. But the fact that you have, uh, a, the finders founder, his wife admitted uh, to having worked for the CIA for that length of time and traveling to those kinds of countries. Uh, that in itself is just, it speaks for itself. It's very damning. It's a very concrete link, direct link between the CIA and the finders cult. You also have other uh, links, as I mentioned, uh, 
that relate to Marion Petty himself, and that is that he w- he worked for the military for approximately 20 years, I believe starting in the 1930s. He was in the army initially, but he um, he basically worked in the corps that became the Air Force. So one, after that point, he was working for the Air Force. Uh, and in the earliest days of his career, he was he admitted in court testimony that he was opening these open apartments, like an open style open house style situation, where he was letting people come in with no no you know fees asked, no questions asked, and he just wanted to have an open house, uh, you know, learning about money, sex, and power from people that would come in. And again, this is in D.C. And basically that was involved with the early, earliest days of what would become kind of the hippie movement, the new age, uh, the, you know, what would then be called the, the alternative lifestyle community. And so what that says to me, and I think that it's a really important thing to note, is that he, you know, Marion Petty did not simply retire in the 50s or so and become a hippie. He didn't just have a lifestyle, like a sea change in his life. He was working in the in the military actively while developing connections in the new age hippie sphere or what would become the, the hippie sphere later on. And so it, that says to me that his, his work in the military very likely could have related to that work in the, the new age. The other thing that's really interesting is the parallel between Petty's work in that sense and the, uh, the uh, activities of people that were later associated with the CIA's MKUltra program, like Dr. Lewis Joy Long West, who was you know, infamous for his role in the whole MKUltra program. And he, like, like Petty, he opened uh, an open house in Haight-Ashbury in San Francisco, and he uh, labeled it, he uh, framed it as a hippie crash pad, and he had uh, funding from the CIA to study people that came into this place again in the same sense with no questions asked free food you know just hang out here crash here do drugs here whatever and they're going to study you know the effect maybe the effect of these drugs on these hippies so you also later on not just in not just in the early days of of petty's activities but later on when the finders group is you know fully functional it's fully formed and it's very active they have uh, a rural property in Virginia called the Ragged Mountain Ranch. And they, again, were offering basically free um, housing, very low cost and no questions asked to people. So you have this continuing um, kind of parallel there. And in addition, and this, you know, this branches off a little bit, but uh, basically in terms of the finders group itself and relationship to intelligence or parallels with intelligence, we have testimony from uh, Lieutenant Hart from Culpeper, Virginia, I believe of uh, Virginia State Police, who said that uh, basically he had had contact with the Finders cult and that he thought that Petty would take a military plane to China. And then you have another person in law enforcement saying from, I believe, again, Virginia State Police saying that uh, the Finders had attempted to take control of the local Culpeper uh, city uh, government in Culpeper, Virginia. So, and that's really interesting because Sidney Gottlieb, who's known as the basically the black sorcerer of MK Ultra, and that's that's you know mainstream media coming up with that term, basically uh, retired. When he retired, he retired to Culpeper, Virginia as well. And not only that, he retired under that same kind of guise as this eco, econo, uh, environmentally conscious eco hippie. He was raising goats and eating yogurt and that type of thing when he was interviewed. And, you know, while that on the surface, you know, it just sounds like a way to re- rehabilitate his ha- highly tarnished image. 
uh, it's a very interesting parallel with the finders and their whole, uh, mm-hmm. their framing of themselves as, as hippies, very, uh, very alternative and all of that. And it's very interesting that they would try to take over, according to state police, the city government of the same town that, uh, that Gottlieb would eventually retire in. So I thought that was very interesting. Uh, then you have, and you know, all of this, I, there are some researchers who've said something to the effect of, well, the finders love to lie and they love to play games with people's heads. And so basically they would love you to think that they're CIA. They would love you to think that because it would make the, you know, basically stoke Petty's uh, ego or something to that effect. But, and that would be all well and good if it weren't for the CIA uh, connections with the 1987 investigation and what appears to be the cover, the ultimate cover up of that uh, interference by the CIA in the 1993 inquiry. So in 87, you have Martinez writing again, as we've mentioned, that the CIA stepped in and ended the investigation into the finders cult. And you have Martin, and this is where I'd like to bring in Sergeant John Stitcher, who's really important in terms of the CIA connection with the finders, in, specifically in the 87 aspect of it. Martinez's initial like customs documents are redacted in terms of who told him that the CIA had stepped in. Uh, he describes them as a third party speaking off the record because at the time that he, Martinez wrote those reports, uh, Stitcher was still alive. However, by uh, May 1992, Stitcher passes away due to what is called septic shock in his obituary. And so subsequent documents do not redact his name for that reason. And we have uh, Martinez's whistle, whistleblower complaint that specifically states that Sergeant uh, John Stitcher was the per- the individual at the Metropolitan Police Department who uh, to- informed him that the CIA had stepped in, that they had rendered the whole investigation an internal matter, et cetera, et cetera. So Stitcher is also the person who reached out to the CIA from Metropolitan Police Intelligence Division and asked them, you know, what's going on. And he's the person who writes the report that admits that, Pe- that Isabel Petty had been given these passports, that the CIA seems to have had, quote, a vested interest in the finders, that they may have been funding them. And so, you know, it's it's very unfortunate that the one person who could have corroborated Martinez's account and who could have corroborated the CIA ties and admission of ties with the finders happens to have passed away about a year before this uh, DOJ inquiry takes place so that no questions of him can be asked. Um, And yeah, so they've got that. And then the 1993 inquiry basically comes along, tries to refute Martinez and tries to, uh, you know, state in various places that people, you know, didn't experience, people from various agencies will state during in the FBI vault documents on this 1993 inquiry saying, you know, to the effect, well, the CIA didn't interfere directly with my investigation, or I didn't see the evidence that Martinez says he saw. However, and we can, you know, get more into that, there, the admissions in the vault documents actually contradict those people. So... All right. So since you've uh, mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Raymond Martinez uh, several times, are there any um, more of his claims that you want to go into? Um, Because I'd be uh, there's there's a few specific ones that I want to ask you about specifically. Um, So I I I think it would be best to let you give an overview, um, not just of his claims, but also of which uh, pieces uh, of or, or which assertions of his uh, are corroborated by other evidence, some of which you already mentioned, and also your overall assessment of his credibility over the uh, over the course of your work on this case. 
Sure. Yeah. I've, I've been looking at uh, Martinez's, I've looked at, into his documents since about 2017. I reached out to him in 2017 and I did speak with him uh, for about an hour, but it was off the record and he refused to go on record. And at the time, obviously these vault documents had not been published. That happened later in 2019. So by the time I reached out to him again to speak with him, he was refusing to talk to me even off record. So he's really unwilling at this time to speak to anyone, it seems, about this case. And I don't really blame him. Uh, it seems <laughs> yeah. that from the interview and the, the communication that has been published between Martinez and Derek Bros of the Conscious, Re Conscious Resistance, it seems that Martinez feels that the he believes there will be no prosecution of this case. Therefore, why talk about it? And I, to, to an extent, I understand that. But uh, my point there being that Martinez is hardly, you know, coming out of this case looking for attention, to put it mildly. Uh, so, but he did confirm to me that his documents were real, that the ones that, you know, are published online are genuine, that he authored them, et cetera, et cetera. Martinez was a special agent for the Customs Service at the time of the initial 1987 investigation. He had been associated with the uh, child pornography unit, which, you know, eventually, I guess, was shut down. But for that reason, he was asked by um, Agent Kreitlau, who was from Tallahassee, uh, was from the Tallahassee Customs uh, Service, to basically look into the databases and see whether the Michael Houlihan or Douglas Ammerman came up in the child pornography databases. That was negative. But uh, Raymond happened to be in D.C. at the time, and he was contacted by another agent who had contact with Kreitlau, who asked him to basically participate in these searches. So Martinez goes into these searches, uh, you know, the first of which takes place at the houses, the like the residences of the finders in D.C., the day after the initial arrests. So you would think that there would be, you know, whatever evidence to be found would be there. Uh, that is a little bit murky because it's indicated, and it's kind of a long story, but it's indicated that the finders were already by by the end of the four, the end of the day on the fourth, they were already aware of the arrest. They were already communicating about it, and that's that's not just from Martinez uh, Martinez's accounts. That's also from records from the Tallahassee Police Department. So. Martinez goes to the residence in D.C. on the 5th, and he alleges that he sees, uh, and this isn't in the article because it was just so long already, but I'll, but I'll go into it now because I think it is important, uh, and that is that he sees Stuart, a man named Stuart Silverstone in the finder's residence, and he, you know, he records his social security number. He describes him as sitting amongst all of these documents. Now, that's if if we if we were to think that Martinez was uh, in, inventing the documents that he witnessed or the description of them, it's really fascinating that he would happen to, you know, just magically meet the person who uh, turns out, as far as the Tallahassee Police Department records go, uh, was from the very earliest moments of the case calling them. Uh, making anonymous phone calls under a different name and very interested in what was going on with the children in Florida. So he's a he's uh, you know a known finders member who is corroborated to have who to have existed by other de police department records and all of that. So in this room that Martinez describes as a documents room, he sees uh, evidence of communications across a, an early version of kind of like a computer network amongst the finders between locations in the other parts of the country and overseas. And he has a really, um, you know, stoic way of describing what he's seeing. He doesn't try to say, okay, well, 
they're, you know, I'm seeing evidence that they're obtaining children for X, Y purposes. He just says, this is the evidence I'm seeing. And I'm, and I, I introduced that because later on in some metropolitan police department documents and reports, you have really weird, um, kind of analysis of the psychology of the group. So I'm, I just wanted to establish there that Martinez does not kind of go into speculation in his report. He simply describes what he sees. So he says that he sees documents referring to uh, the finder's desire to obtain children. He says it's for unspecified purposes, but they seem to be very, very interested and motivated in obtaining children and, and sometimes criminally, but sometimes not through criminal means, for example, through the impregnation of finder's members to produce children, but also through trading, kidnapping, uh, purchasing and whatever other you know method they can they can go with. He says that he sees uh, communications requesting the purchase of children, two children from Hong Kong through the ch- uh, contacts in the Chinese embassy. China comes up a lot in this in this case and in various documents across the board, which again kind of corroborates Martinez because it's it, why on earth would it be China of all places when you have China coming up all the time with the finders? Um, it, he also describes. Uh, the finders researching uh, families, private families that are not finders members, uh, looking into uh, occupation at daycare centers, at as babysitters, uh, basically compiling uh, intelligence on families. Um, you know, and he doesn't he does not speculate that they're going to go in and kidnap children, but that's the implication from what he says. And before I continue with what he saw, I'll just add that. The, that was partially corroborated by another vault document that says that the Washington Metro, uh, sorry, again, the, the uh, Washington Metropolitan Police Department basically uh, had, to t- had to speak to a woman because her information had been contained in finders documents and they had attempted to, you know, ga- gain employment from her as a babysitter. And so the the police were basically alerting this woman that her information had been found in finder's documents. So, again, I add that because it corroborates what Martinez is saying. Right. So on that case in particular, I wanted to uh, mention that because that particular woman you're talking about had been referred to finder's members as babysitters by employees of Georgetown University. And you... Um, have mentioned MK Ultra several times, but what I found interesting about Georgetown coming up is that not only does that school have longstanding ties to the CIA just in general, uh, but the CIA uh, on record used it for uh, various parts of its MK Ultra program. Uh, so I definitely found that a little disturbing, uh, to say the least. Anyway, continue. No, that's a really great point. And I mean, again, like the the articles, the, the two articles that have really gotten into the, the deep dive aspect of the case were like 4,300 words by the time they were published. So I didn't want to go into too many tangents, but there, but I you mentioned that. that. And <laughs> there was also, if you read the Martinez uh, documents entirely and not just, you know, not just rely on my, my summaries of them, there's also an interesting point where he says that there is a resident in the finder's property that was a Chinese uh, citizen who was going to Georgetown University and studying anatomy as well. So that, so Georgetown comes up again there also. But so, wow. but moving back to what Martinez said uh, that he witnessed, he also saw the um, basically what he described as files that were labeled as operations, which is not a term that a hippie lifestyle commune is going to describe its games as. Um, I think <laughs> yeah. basically we can establish that 
the way that the finders framed their activities as games is very much just a, a lame attempt to, just, to de, um, disguise what is obviously intelligence type operations. They labeled their files operations. Uh, they had things titled like terrorism, explosives, Pentagon break-in, uh, and, and a lot of other things. Like uh, they had uh, file names that were referring to countries where they had operations, which included one file labeled Palestinian. And uh, you know there were other there were high uh, high tech transfers of money, a lot of money from uh, London, from the UK. There was so you've got indications of child. Kidnap, trafficking, purchasing, trading. You have indications of money being transferred uh, internationally. You have indications of some sort of interest in terrorism, in breaking into the Pentagon. I mean, it's just, it's 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 very yeah, it's explosive. Mental. You know, mm -hmm. it's not it's not the type of allegations that would be made lightly. But the way that that Martinez describes it is not at all, um, you know, sensationalized. It's very. He's just like, this is these are the names that I remember. This is what I saw. So he goes through and then. On the second day, on in his uh, you know participation in the search warrants, he's at the finder's warehouse, which is another a second property. And in that property, he finds or he's shown uh, photographs that include the infamous uh, what was called a ritual abusive event with these children being uh, participating in the slaughter and disembowelment of two goats, a male and female goat one of which uh, the female was pregnant. And so you have issues, you know, the kids participating in their, in her disembowelment. You have uh, finders members dressed in white robes standing around the children doing that. The finders explanation for that incident and the photographs of it is that it was a keepsake from a learning moment, a teaching moment that was uh, intended to basically teach them about anatomy and Whoa. or to, you know, yeah. about the reality of meat and how it's produced and that type of thing. So yeah, the okay. interesting, like that's really, really uh, confronting. The issue that that I think is brought up is, you know, and, and one of the ways that people have dismissed this whole story is, well, it was a it was a moral panic, it was satanic panic. People ran away with that picture, and therefore, um, you know, the whole case is bunk if we don't believe that that's a ritually abusive situation that was happening. And the thing is that regardless of uh, of what you think the intent was behind those images, they were documented multi by multiple other police departments, by the news reports at the time, et cetera, et cetera. So Martinez was not, uh, you know, inventing having witnessed these images or or what they contained. The only uh, debate that there is, is is exactly what was intended with that activity. You also have, uh, you know, nude images of children. Uh, one and Martinez doesn't actually state this himself in his documents, but news reporters who got a tip off to the search of the warehouse on the second day, which was the sixth, uh, basically said that they witnessed from the bags of photos and bags of documents that were being taken out by police from this warehouse, that they saw an image through the, like through the clear plastic bag of a child, a, na a naked child in chains. So, Oh my God. Okay. So it's, yeah, no, I mean, it's like that. And then this, this evidence that was then collected that was extreme. I mean, and that, that, um, you know, Martinez attempts to review for a month is then what disappears. And then the records of it don't have any description of, or detailed description of what was, what the evidence was. It just describes it as photographs, documents, you know, passports. It doesn't say where the passports are to. It doesn't say what the photographs are of. So, uh, and, and when, and the, the search warrant, which is the only record there is in the, in the vault documents, 
Um, one of them doesn't even have somebody who's signing it as a witness in the way that you're supposed to. And the uh, WMFO had to admit that, that that was improper in their own synopsis of the whole thing. And so, as I said in the article, it would be really easy to dismiss what Martinez is saying if, the, if they had records of evidence, if they had copies of the evidence. But instead, the evidence is destroyed and or returned to the finders within days. And then we don't have the mm -hmm. records of it even to go on after that. So that leaves us relying on Martinez's uh, word and also on the word of John Stitcher, who, as I said earlier, uh, passed away before we could you know, have corroboration from him. So getting back to what Martinez saw, he, in addition to the documents that he saw and the photographs that he saw in these two locations, on the second day, he was in the warehouse and he describes the whole setup there as basically like... Um, he describes it as there were rooms that were looked like they were for indoctrination or some type of altar setup with jars of urine and feces, you know, many of them being around this altery type situation. Uh, other police department records uh, from the, you know, the DC police corroborate this. They don't specify the way that Martinez does about the urine and feces and that type of thing, but they say that there are rooms roped off that look like sets, which suggest pornography, basically. And so their take on it was more pornographic. Um, they also, uh, you know, throughout the throughout various documents from various agencies, you have this reference to mind control that comes up a lot. Uh, Martinez says that it there looks to be a, a, um, a room that looks like it's set up for, quote, indoctrination. And you have other police basically corroborating that, saying that it looked like there was a, a room that was used for some type of mind control. That there were books that expressed an interest in mind control. And there was, uh, you know, satellite dish antennas set up on the roof. There was all sorts of technological um, advanced kind of um, technology there. Martinez says that they looked like they were set up to create their own videos and send them out. So, so that's what you have at the warehouse's second day. And uh, again, all of that, all of the evidence, as I said, was di disappeared before uh, Martinez himself could review it or anyone else could review it. And basically, what you have is the entire official narrative resting on Martinez's word being a lie. Because if you have, if he is credible, you have all of this evidence of uh, obviously criminal activity that was never investigated, right. that was never prosecuted. If you, if he's credible, you have an indication that the CIA stepped in to protect this group. And if, and according to Stitcher, you know, the CIA essentially was running this group and, or at least was probably funding them, had a vested interest in them. And we, ha we know that, that the, the finders cult member, uh, founder and his wife was in the, was working for the CIA for 20 plus years. So, if, if Martinez is correct, if Stitcher is correct, then that is a huge problem. And so basically what happened was the evidence was, uh, was disappeared in, that, in the use of the term that way. And it leaves us with only Martinez's word and no way to verify it. The other issue with this whole story is that none of the children as adults have, that were um, you know, recovered in Tallahassee have come forward as, as adult uh, you know, victims. They haven't given their stories to the public so, and there is a, another a number of other issues like that that set this case kind of apart from issues like Detroit, where you do have multiple witnesses who came forward as adults saying, you know, this happened to me, or Epstein. You have lots of wit of victims, witnesses saying, this is what I saw, this is what I experienced. So, what we're left with is the documentation from Martinez, the documentation from these vault documents, and the statements of people associated with the case, the Tallahassee police records, uh, and you know. 
for those reasons, I can understand why this case has received so little attention, much less the association with ritual abuse, which has become, you know, basically radioactive to most journalists. So, you know, for multiple reasons, it's very understandable that most journalists wouldn't want to cover this. However, the, the strength of Martinez's record, I think, is is real. I think I would assess him as very credible based on the corroboration of um, details in his reports, like the uh, the disembowelment of these goats, like the babysitter um, situation that relates to Georgetown, and the fact that just the fact that he he uh, documented Stuart Silverstone being at the location, like that. You know, those aspects of what he's saying are corroborated elsewhere. The only thing that he can't corroborate, that we can't corroborate directly, are the most, unfortunately, the most damning allegations about these documents seeking the um, obtaining of children and kidnapping and that type of thing. Right. So one thing I do want to comment um, on on what you just said is about like why none of these children uh, as adults came forward. And so I think what sets us apart, uh, sets these children apart from those involved uh, that were victims of the Dutroux affair or the Epstein scandal is that their parents were part of the finders. Whereas with Epstein victims, uh, with Dutroux victims, their parents weren't in on it in in, in the vast majority of cases. Um, you know, maybe one exception with the Epstein's would be like the 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 Dubins. There's like weird claims that Epstein wanted to marry uh, their daughter, but the it, the parents were very close with Epstein um, and all of this. And there's been some speculation about that, but you know, just just speculation. So I think uh, that may uh, be one of the reasons uh, why. Um, and one thing I did want to ask you to to clarify on, uh, mainly for people who are listening, is exactly what age. Um, of children we're talking about here, because there's also um, not just the fact um, of the age of the children who uh, were discovered in Tallahassee, but also the presence of uh, clothes and articles for children of specific ages at these properties. So could you elaborate a little bit on that, please? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, The children that were recovered in Tallahassee range from approximately two years old to six years old. Uh, the many of the most of them were unable to communicate. They were mute. They and just to expand on that a little bit, they didn't seem to know how um, you know toilets used. They defecated and urinated on the floor. They were exceptionally hungry when they were found, and so uh, they were clearly not in good shape. The uh, the fact that they that the finders were not uh, prosecuted for just issues of neglect uh, boggles my mind. Yeah, it is telling day, in and uh, of regardless itself. of any of the other allegations that you have in this case. The uh, what Martinez describes is a plethora of children's clothing aged from toddlerhood, infancy to preschool uh, that he found that he witnessed at these finders residences in D.C. And I should also add, because I I meant to say this earlier, that the communications that uh, Martinez says he witnessed included instructions from the finders in D.C., uh, from uh, basically describing how or uh, telling other finders members to move the children and how to, you know the children being children obviously that were not the ones that had been recovered in Tallahassee right. these were additional children of an unknown number uh, that they were basically saying that you need to move them here's how to avoid law enforcement keep them going through different jurisdictions and none of the and none of those children were ever found we don't know how many they had it's completely unknown. But from, again, like, as you mentioned, from what Martinez says, they must have been very young. And I agree with you that it's, it's, uh, it is a very different situation when you have finders members having these children 
and having them grow up from you know birth in this situation it's a very different thing than having you know 14 year old girls being lured into this by somebody like Ghislaine Maxwell when you talk about Epstein and his situation yeah, uh, I, I think there are some uh, differences here, uh, for sure. And also, like, you know, with Epstein, a lot of those uh, women, as far as we know, right, the victims that have come forward were lured in. Whereas what we're talking about here um, is are things like kidnapping, purchasing and stuff like that. And there is evidence that Epstein did that to an extent. But uh, one of the most credible cases of Epstein purchasing someone, for example, that woman who was pur- purchased from a family in Eastern Europe, ended up becoming a co-conspirator and part of his entourage, became part of the system. Right. So I yeah. think, you know, these the ways in which uh, these victims uh, are brought into these circles uh, tends to have an impact on on how they view the situation um, uh, to a to a certain extent um, and whether or not they feel, you know, Stockholm syndrome or things like that, uh, you know, get factored in. Um, so there's a lot of different things to consider. And of course, the massive age difference here in both the Dutro affair. And the Epstein scandal, like you mentioned, it was mostly like young teen uh, girls, not very, very young kids that we're dealing with uh, here. And so in the case of like extreme abuse of a two year old or something, an adult in that situation uh, that, that lived through that may not exactly have uh, the ability to come forward with a complete coherent story um, about what he or she experienced in this situation, which may be another factor um, as well. But it's certainly um, exactly. extremely disturbing considering uh, the, the what I would consider very obvious um, government ties here, um, because, you know, it. The, the abuse of children this young uh, in, in these ways, based on what has been described at these properties, is just like uh, beyond. And I honestly uh, found some of um, what you described in your pieces honestly like difficult, uh, difficult to get through because, you know, I have a kid in that um, age range and I just like I can't even fathom um, this happening to to children of that age. But um Anyway, uh, not to dwell on 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 that and my personal emotional reaction uh, to this stuff, but there are some different things that I wanted to ask you about um, that that uh, you touched on. So one of uh, the aspects of the case that really jumped out to me was this an involvement, the fact that it was just international in scope, uh, that there were, were indications of finders properties, uh, not just in the United States, not just the ones that were searched, but in other countries, that finders were communicating with people that appeared to be operatives working directly with the finders in other countries. And as you mentioned earlier, the apparent involvement of foreign governments, specifically Hong Kong, uh, with aspects of finders activities, uh, specifically the acquisition of children, so um, as you point out, or as you have pointed out, um, it's it's hard to believe the so-called official stories about the finders, uh, considering, you know, the the extensive international uh, nature of this in, in ways that uh, do not imply it to have been an alternative living community uh, by any means, especially, you know, considering the fact that the, the HQ of this whole operation was based in D.C., the seat of U.S. political power in the national security state and run by, by a CIA adjacent leader. And one thing you mentioned in your piece about the uh, the the founder of the the Finders cult that we didn't I don't think we quite touched on is that later on a spokesman for the group admits that he appears to have some sort of military intelligence tie not just military tie that claiming that he was trained in intelligence work but in, you know when he's this is a guy defending the group right so he asserts that uh, Petty didn't actually engage in intelligence work but the fact that he was trained in uh, techniques of espionage 
by the military, I think is pretty significant in that sense too. So, um, uh, there's one thing I want to say about the Air America connection in relation to Hong Kong, but I can do that later. So um, if you wouldn't mind speaking to this foreign angle uh, a little bit more and uh, what you feel its implications are. Sure. No, it's a it's a great point. And yeah, the the interview you referenced with Toby Terrell, who, who emerged during the 1987 investigation as kind of a finder's spokesperson or kind of a he appears to have been a kind of second in command to Marion Petty. He uh, did an interview with Derek Bros, a great interview that Derek Bros conducted at the Conscious Resistance, and he basically spent, from what I could tell from listening to it and reading the transcript of it, that he, for you know, the vast majority of the interview, is trying to downplay any type of allegation that the finders were involved with government, they're working for intelligence. He basically tries to argue that that they were trying to be a a uh, central intelligence agency uh, in a spiritual sense. It's bizarre the type of stuff that he tries to <laughs> oh, say. But what a, yeah, the CIA is so spiritual, so that makes yeah. sense. Okay. <laughs> right. No, it, it's it's really, it's amazing. It, uh, but the what he says, though, he admits when he's trying to basically, uh, I would say, flatter Petty a little bit, he, he says that the intelligence brass, the military intelligence brass really liked Petty a lot that he was really looked upon well by them and that he was trained in intelligence, as you say, but that he was never assigned and that instead he simply retired and he went on the spiritual path and became a spiritual guru, which, as I said earlier, that's not accurate. He didn't simply retire and then transition into this role. He was involved in these groups and in this type of movement, the the New Age movement, and even just the predecessor to the, the New Age movement all the way back into the 30s while he was actively working for right. the military. Mm-hmm. So the but the fact that as you say like that the Toby Terrell would admit that he was trained in intelligence is very damning. Um I doubt that you could get him to admit it again if you were to interview him again. Uh but uh that tells us a lot I think about this type of operation and I think also as I said earlier I mentioned the parallel with uh, Dr. Uh, Louis Joylon West who was known to have been a psychiatrist funded by the CIA working in in um, these MK Ultra mind control type studies. And the way that he was doing it was so similar to the way that Marion Petty was operating. And I think that that's really, um, that's really an important parallel. Of course, I'm not arguing that I can establish a direct link between West and Petty, but the parallel in their behavior is very interesting. Yeah, well, there's also, um, you know, indications, well, from my work on Epstein, right, um, you know, I've written about the Edge Foundation, which essentially became an Epstein front, and its founder, John Brockman, uh, the literary agent, was very close to Epstein. Uh, but Brockman actually, uh, back, I think in the, if I remember correctly, it was like the late 60s or something, was very involved in counterculture movements as well, um, with people like Andy Warhol and and famous sort of counterculture figures at the same time that he was doing uh, cons- consulting work and contract work uh, for both the White House and the Pentagon. Uh, so there definitely has been, uh, you know, in, in addition to what you're talking about, uh, there's just numerous indications from many different angles of uh, extreme interest of the national security state in studying, subverting, and also weaponizing uh, various aspects of the counterculture of the 60s to various degrees. Absolutely. And I've been reading the, that book that I cite in my article, uh, Chaos, uh, by Tom O'Neill. It's fascinating, especially the end of the book. He gets into a lot of this MKUltra type involvement with uh, the hippie culture and that type of thing. But uh, but re- to return to your question or your point about the foreign angle, uh, 
it's really interesting the degree to which China comes up in the finder's uh, investigation and documents. As I believe I mentioned earlier, there's reference to Marion Petty uh, by uh, Virginia authorities basically saying that they thought that he would get onto a military plane and just fly to China. Uh, and this is during the 87 investigation. This is while the finders are involved or, or are being studied and investigated for all of this um, really serious, uh, these serious child abuse allegations. It's it's mind boggling to me that somebody who had been retired for 20 years in that type of, you know, while under that type of, of investigation would be able to obtain that type of transport unless he was in some way, um, you know, working actively at the time. I think that uh, it's also, I mean, the, the, the issue is uh, on one level that the only uh, corroboration of the, the um, international angle that I know of outside of uh, Martinez's records are the passports themselves that were given to these restricted countries, which speaks for itself as, as to how serious of a, a government involvement the finders must have had. But in terms of the uh, international uh, information contained in Martinez's records, there's obviously a lot and it's extensive. Uh, it's basically uh, global. The other thing is that in, a, in, a, in an attempt to defend the finders, they've described themselves, they do admit that they were you know, going internationally and, and very much throughout the country, but that they basically were portrayed as, you know, going around on random games for really no reason. And it's just self-improvement and self-understanding. Uh, I do think it's interesting that when you look at what MKUltra was trying to do in terms of, um, you know, studying the way that people's minds could be manipulated and, um, and that type of thing, you have Marion Petty in an interview describing how he would try to get his, the finders members to, make he would try to get them to recast their minds as if they were children so let's drop you off in a country and have you act like a child and go out and try to make a hundred dollars or how you know, do some sort of weird random task and come back and so even that although it, it's basically an attempt to make the finders look harmless it's also very telling i think as to what they were up to um additionally in the fbi vault documents although this is kind this isn't um in itself, in any way nefarious, there is record of uh, a number of different finders members that were female that were involved in trying to um, set up either a business or some type of bank situation in Panama. I mean, so the 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 range of locations that they were trying to um, operate in is is extensive. The other thing is, and the issue with Panama kind of leads into this a little bit that we haven't talked about, uh, but that is important is that Martinez also describes a number of front there, that there are lists of front organizations, front companies for the finders. And you have uh, Sergeant Stitcher later talking to customs saying that, uh, and this is reported by, uh, it, by the Washington times, I believe in 93, basically saying that the finders were uh, operating as a front, but that they were, operating future enterprises and that they that that was also like a cia front and that type of thing the cia completely denied it and uh yeah so there's just there's a whole issue of front organizations front companies which is just typical for cia type operations yeah. and intelligence operations in general but i think overall the most interesting and kind of bizarre connection internationally with the finders although obviously there are many that we've already talked about 
is the link to China that keeps coming up over and over again, whether it's Petty allegedly going there, whether it's this alleged pers- uh, purchase of children from Hong Kong, and not just from Hong Kong, but specifically through contacts in the Chinese embassy in Hong Kong. You have also have the children, one of the children uh, that was verbal, uh, basically stating to Tallahassee police, and this is documented in their records, that she was able to count to 10 in Chinese. And I believe there was a Chinese dictionary that was found with the children in the van. Uh, so there's something going on there between the finders and China. Now, what that means exactly or the significance of it, I couldn't say. But it's definitely something that is corroborated. And because of that, because it comes up in multiple different agency reports in different veins, in different ways, I would say that um, to me, that corroborates Martinez stating that he witnessed this this document requesting the purchase of children in Hong Kong. Because if it had been only that and there wasn't this, this other um, evidence relating to the finders in China, um, you know, I wouldn't I would look at it, you know, potentially a little bit more speculatively, but I think that it's pretty, pretty concrete in the context of everything else, all this other vast material around the finders that we have. Yeah, so your mention of Hong Kong in this piece and the mention of the Chinese uh, connection coming up over and over again, I uh, found really interesting because, well, obviously a lot of my work on the Epstein case is in a book that's going to come out soon, so I haven't published it yet. Um, But what really surprised me as I got deeper into the research was that also, um, not just with Epstein, but also with... Um, some of these other sexual blackmailers tied to U.S. intelligence that were active uh, before Epstein and have direct ties to the same network, like Roy Cohn, for example, uh, have uh, weird business links and other connections with Hong Kong and also with uh, Panama and several people tied to uh, Epstein, uh, including Douglas Lease, who was allegedly one of his mentors of the UK arms dealers, a lot of dealings in Hong Kong as well. Um, and so one mystery that I uh, am still not sure about, but that this sort of uh, made a light bulb go off, or reading your piece sort of made like a light bulb go off in my head, is the fact that, you know, you mentioned earlier that the Finder's founder, his son, had an admitted connection to Air America, um, which, of course, was renamed Southern Air Transport. It essentially gets overtaken by both Epstein and Leslie Wexner by 1995 and has its main base relocated from Miami, Florida uh, to Ohio with the express purpose of running cargo uh, for Wexner-owned companies. And I thought it was weird because, you know, in a lot of the reporting with the Epstein scandal, a lot of his trafficking activities and other activities, arms dealing and all of that, was based in the so-called, you know, all, uh, you know, in places like uh, Europe, Eastern Europe, um, in, in the Middle East to some extent. But uh, this airline, once they relocated it to Ohio, wasn't running cargo, wasn't making flights there. They were making flights to Hong Kong. Um, and I think that's pretty significant when you're talking about, you know, uh, this this Marion Petty guy, um, his son having worked for that same airline, um, all these CIA ties. Uh, they're going to Hong Kong to acquire people. Um, why were Epstein and Wexner going to Hong Kong? I mean, obviously, part of it was related to uh, the the limited garment industry and that. But I mean, why use the CIA airline if the only type of quote unquote cargo uh, that you're running are garments and clothes? Um, 
So, you know, I, I've been trying to figure out uh, for a while, you know, what was in Hong Kong that was of interest to them because a lot of these other people were expressly uh, that did sexual blackmail activity, uh, had a lot of, you know, business ties or were getting uh, money and funding for things they were using as fronts from Hong Kong and, and, and things like that. But there seems to be a recurring Chinese government tie, um, which is something that, that your work on the Finders call, you know, also shows that there was this sort of CIA uh, element of that um, here as well. And, you know, it makes me really wonder that if, you know, this, uh, the type of activity that Marianne Petty was engaged with in Hong Kong with the uh, apparent uh, consent um, of at least some Chinese government officials, um, what if uh, Epstein and Wexner's involvement in that was similar? Um, I think it's also possible, you know, one thing I've sort of bounced around in my head maybe is that we know that um, at numerous Epstein residences and close Epstein, uh, very close Epstein associates um, employed essentially forced labor of women that had been trafficked from the Philippines somehow. Um, and it's very possible that they were moved from the Philippines to China um, uh, or Hong Kong rather, and then brought over to the U.S. that way. Um, because these women, you know, would tell Epstein victims when they asked, like, where are you from? And, you know, how did you get here? And all of this stuff, they would say they had been stolen. They didn't have access to their passports and things like that, which are obvious indications of some sort of illegal trafficking having taken place there. But, you know, uh, this finders thing raises questions because of, you know, Epstein and Wexner's obvious involvement in other types of human trafficking as, you know, for sexual purposes um, and potentially unknown purposes. You know, was there another uh, reason there if Hong Kong was known to, you know, CIA adjacent groups to be a place where uh, minors could be essentially purchased? Um, you know, I think that's a definite red flag. Absolutely. I think that's a really great point. I think that really that's enlightening as to that connection between the finders in China and the way that that keeps coming up. And, and as you say, specifically Hong Kong, that's fascinating. I was unaware of that. Yeah. It may be um, the that, UK so tie yeah. to the Hong Kong to Hong Kong as well, historically and, and during this period as well. But, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly, but it is very disturbing to say the least. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one thing that comes to mind that's um, maybe slightly tangential, but I, but we're mentioning other um, trafficking uh, stories, human trafficking scandals, child trafficking scandals. And one thing that I found very interesting was that, you know, and as you mentioned in your introduction, at the same time that the finders is happening, there's a lot of other scandals that are unfolding, being covered up, you know, not just child trafficking, but, you know, the Iran-Contra scandal, all that. So one of the things that was interesting was I did find in, a, in an you know obscure reference from uh, an a question and answer session with John DeCamp, who was a Nebraska state senator who, uh, you know, as you know, uh, Whitney wrote the Franklin cover-up, mm-hmm. um, which is a book on the Franklin scandal. Um, he was a major figure in the, the documentary Conspiracy of Silence about that scandal. And he asserted in this question and answer se- session that he had been told by CIA people who were concerned about this whole situation when it happened that they had uh, that they were involved with the finders directly and that they were using children for both sexual purposes and the um, what DeCamp calls you know indoctrination nonsense or something to that effect. And he says, you know, I don't know why they're doing it, but that's what they're doing. And he also states, and, I, and I'm going to mention this in, in the next piece that I write, that he states that the finders were directly linked to Omaha. He doesn't elaborate. He doesn't give evidence. Oh, my God. So I can't, you know, yeah. I can't state that that's a fact. But he alleges that. So, and unfortunately, he's passed away. We can't ask him about it. 
but I thought that was very interesting that that he was alleging that there were at least connections there between the finders and another infamous um, similar scandal with child trafficking. Yeah, the and in, in the yeah. Franklin scandal, for those for any of your listeners who are unaware, uh, there were similar allegations of um, you know like mind control activities, ritualistic abuse, but most of them. Um, were involved with children who were runaways or were of an old, a slightly older age, as we said earlier, than the finders. The Franklin scandal involved a lot of teenagers, um, young teenagers that were kind of brought in from the street, essentially and lured in. But uh, yeah, so that that parallel, that link there, at least an alleged link, I thought was really interesting. And uh, yeah, so I, I just thought that was worth mentioning. Yeah, so we know that the same group operating out of Omaha, Nebraska in the Franklin scandal was also tied to Craig Spence's activities in the U.S. Uh, and that's actually the, the busting of Craig Spence, who was involved in sexual blackmail and pedophilia, uh, claimed to have worked for the CIA, very good friends with Roy Cohn. Uh, yeah, it's interesting because the whole Franklin scandal, that situation, I think, has it's almost like a crossover between Epstein and the finders because it has a lot of the more... Um, sensational kind of allegations of this mind control ritual abuse type type stuff like the finders does but it's using children of the age group generally i mean you know in very vague terms but generally it's using children that are more of the age that epstein was was involved with and it was more through the method epstein and his cohorts were using as far as luring kids in in just in this case it was off the street you know yeah so yeah, well, in the case of the Franklin scandal, also the Craig Spence uh, situation, uh, very obvious ties to the U.S. government there and also U.S. intelligence. In the case of the Franklin scandal, you have very powerful players in the orbit of George H.W. Bush and his subsequent presidential administration involved in that. And of course, there's a, the Callboy scandal of children being taken to the White House for quote unquote midnight tours under some suspicious circumstances tied up with the Craig Spence uh, situation. And of course, George H.W. Bush was previously a CIA director um, and involved in a lot of uh, nefarious activities, including, you know, a lot of the uh, high crimes, you could you could say, of, of the Reagan era, uh, which includes uh, several of uh, the scandals of, of the same era we're talking about. Um, so, you know, if I want to look at all these scandals and and sort of the the big picture type situation, it seems to me, oh, this is, of course, just speculation, right? Um, but, you know, if you're um, U.S. intelligence and you want to study, you know, these these what appears to have been different techniques and uh, uh, on children and you want to, you know, potentially blackmail people or produce uh, child pornography and all of this of children of different ages, why not have different uh, groups engaging in similar activities, but focusing on different uh, types of children, different ages of children, di different demographics, um, and things like that. So, um, you know, that's something that, uh, you know, has, has popped into my mind in relation to this case. But, you know, the the claims of John DeCamp in that sense are very disturbing. And like you said, um, I was actually reading your piece and the, the, what you brought up about ritual, um, uh, uh, evidence of ritual abuse in, um, in the context of the finders, of course, that was also very prominent um, in the Franklin scandal as well. And of course, uh, mainstream media uh, abused that to try and uh, discredit and bury the Franklin scandal in the same way they did uh, to the finders situation. So I think um, that's quite telling as well. Um, sorry, <laughs> kind of oh, yeah, got rambly there. I, and I think as well, like one of the other crossovers while we're speaking about the Franklin scandal is that, and, and I mentioned Craig Spence and, and the Cowboy scandal, that type of thing. Uh, it was uh, Paul Rodriguez, who was a journalist who was uh, 
nominated for the Pulitzer Prize, I believe. And he was he was the person who broke the story on the Craig Spence uh, callboy situation, mm-hmm. uh, the visits to the White House. And he also was the person, the journalist who wrote the one article that has been basically scrubbed from the internet about the Finder scandal, which has the most damning publicly discussed allegations as far as the mainstream corporate press was concerned from the time. He wrote the article in 1993 that quotes the customs documents. He wrote the only article in 1993 that quoted directly from Martinez about CIA interference and that quoted um, other cust- another customs document that appears to have never been made public that refers to the finders uh, operating through the C- uh, with the CIA through this that company I mentioned earlier, Future Enterprises, and that basically it states that the CIA was having uh, its tech people uh, you know, trained in technology by the finders at this company. And of course there are yeah. denials all over the place about that. The company denies knowing that the finders were working for them until it came up in the news. The CIA says we trained with this company, but we had nothing to do with the finders. Uh, so, but that article though, I think is really interesting in the sense that it's the only one you cannot find on an archive online. You can find it um, photographed uh, you, uh, a scan of it in the FBI vault documents. And I found um, a type, uh, you know, basically a transcript of it. Um, in, a, in an archive, but not um, not the type of archive you have with other other news articles from that yeah. period. So I thought that was really telling. Yeah, a lot of but. these intelligence-linked uh, child abusers, Jeffrey Epstein being one, have very telling articles scrubbed. So, you know, like, well, at least from uh, newspaper archives, um, you know, I, um, after my original Epstein series came out for Mint Press, I, um, I ended up publishing sort of an archive of several uh, that I was able to obtain through um, a a third party who did a search for me on LexisNexis and then returned to me uh, some of these things, some of these articles that had come up from uh, the 90s and the early 2000s before Epstein was infamous. And they openly talked about intelligence ties. They openly talked about all sorts of things. Uh, that have been left out, obviously, intentionally um, of the mainstream narrative. And obviously, a lot of those paid databases like LexisNexis, I mean, you can't have access to that unless you're a university researcher or an academic. Otherwise, it's prohibitively um, expensive uh, for obvious reasons to keep that access to information in the hands of uh, people who tend to align themselves uh, you know, with the official narratives uh, more often than not and are often, you know, concerned about career um, and things like that. And not just, of course, talking about academics, but also mainstream uh, media journalists that have access to that type of stuff. Um, so they, they tend not to uh, look for these these types of of documents. So it's definitely something that seems to happen more often uh, than not. And of course, the the reporter you're talking about, a lot of his original reports on uh, Craig Spence uh, have been given the same treatment, only uh, photographs of them exist and some transcripts uh, online, but not the normal archives, uh, you know, that they haven't been preserved uh, in in the normal way, to say the very least. And I think it's pretty obvious uh, why that would be. Um, so what you just brought up um, is, is sort of this uh, technology angle of the finders. I found that really interesting because going back to uh, you know, Vietnam, for example, the CIA, CIA was using databases to keep track of people, uh, not necessarily for trafficking in that case, but for the Phoenix program, which is, you know, a very highly classified so-called domestic domestic dissident uh, extermination program. But really, a lot of the people weren't dissidents. They were just regular people. Um yeah, uh, but they, you know, it was used in sort of the espionage context to find con, you know, uh, to have a person entered in, uh, entered into the database and then their contacts would come up and, uh, they would be determined to be suspicious or not based on, 
you know, uh, uh, various uh, criteria and things like that. And the fact that we know that the finders were spying on regular families, collating information on them. Did this appear in their databases that were sharing with different finders locations and sort of their very own uh, prototype of an internet? Of course, the military and of course, Marion Petty's military intelligence ties are relevant here. Uh, was the original uh, user of the internet before it existed as we know today. And by, you know, around the time, and that the finders were active, you know, uh, ARPANET, the internet of the military certainly existed, um, were the finders enabled in, in using that type of technology uh, through these ties um, that uh, they had to either military intelligence or the CIA? I think that's a question uh, worth asking. And did they use this technology potentially to enable uh, their trafficking activities to keep track of where these children went, who they were, and to potentially find other children to quote unquote uh, recruit or acquire. I think that's pretty, t uh, you know, definitely something to consider. And uh, there's also this reference, I think you mentioned it earlier in the context of money transfer, but in your article, it just said high tech transfer to the UK. Uh, was that of technology or, or something else? I believe based on the references I saw, um, basically where Martinez speaks about this elsewhere, it was a uh, money transfer, but oh, okay. he doesn't specify in that report. So it could all, it could be another type of transfer, but he does, uh, I believe in a different summary, he says that he was seeing the transfer of large amounts of money. Oh, so right. that was okay. definitely a part of it, um, for sure. And then the, the, you mentioned the internet. I think it's really important to, to say, like, as you say, that the, the finders, the military obviously was, was, you know, like you said, so involved in that early technological um, scene before anybody else had access to it. There's so much that that's a whole can of worms. I mean, you know, there's the promise scandal you've reported on. There's all sorts of stuff going on with all that. But also the um, just the fact that the finders were so technologically advanced, the fact that Sergeant Stitcher said, stated, implied, I should say, that the the finders were being funded by the CIA, the fact that they were apparently participating in training CIA people technologically is really telling. And it explains to an extent the way in which they were able to operate over such vast distances globally and in yet such an organized manner that they were able to apparently move children out of their locations so quickly by like the, the night of the arrest in Tallahassee. Um, there was also an incident um, basically where it appears that there were, there were a couple of different groups that were in Tallahassee in Florida that the, the two men and the children that were caught that were apprehended by the police were not acting alone, that there was at least one other person or one other finders member in the area because they recovered the Tallahassee police records that I should mention also were given, a, an unredacted copy of which were given to me by journalist and author Nick Bryant, who got into the Franklin scandal after having right. read these documents that were written by Martinez on the finder scandal. Um, he was kind enough to send me a copy of the unredacted Tallahassee police uh, reports. And in those, they describe the um, the discovery of a um, a little TSR TSR eighty I may be saying that wrong a little early computer had basically been left in a phone booth at a uh, I believe Florida State University I could be wrong on that detail but it's at a university campus and that somebody who was working for the Tallahassee police on a part time basis who was also a student discovered this computer and brought it in and they, they when they got into it they saw that it was a finders member not simply keeping tab on the fact that their group had been you know their their fellows had been arrested but also keeping tabs on the actual investigators in the case as well oh. and this was probably i think a few days basically by the 10th they had discovered this and, and had looked into it so 
Um, yeah, the, the way in which finders were using technology was highly advanced and finders members who, um, you know, can still be found you can still track them down. A few of them, um, seem to still be interested in futurism in that they describe themselves themselves as futurists. And that seems to be their angle moving from, you know, and you have this, you know, in a big picture sense, what you're seeing is this, this shift of Marion Petty and the finders in the early days being, um, you know, eco hippies being people living out on farms and part of the whole 60s you know, counterculture. Then you move through to the 80s and they're presenting themselves more in like suits and ties as, you know, computer experts. And then th through that period, they moved into basically kind of describing themselves as futurists. Although as uh, Toby Terrell will uh, stated or claimed that, you know, he claimed that the finders disbanded. I think that's very questionable. I think that overall, the finders were because nobody in the finders was ever prosecuted. The entire investigation was very well co covered up. I think it's it's fair enough to say that I don't think that whatever they were doing, I don't think ended, and I don't think that they, um, as a group, ever disbanded. I you know, and I think if anything, I think the finders cult and the incidents surrounding it really are probably one of the very few times that that type of operation was ever glimpsed, even just briefly. And I don't think that um, you know. Assuming that it has continued, which I believe that it probably has, I don't think um, with the amount of resources that um, intelligence agencies have that anything like that will ever probably be discovered again, uh, just because the the level of technology that they have available now that we all have available is just so easy to you know manipulate and alter things and stay very well hidden. Well, also not only that, but also you know today the national security state and these same intelligence agencies responsible for these types of crimes and activities um, have very sophisticated software to detect what you know they refer to as insider threats. Who you know, of course, they frame as being insider threats to national security, but they can also surveil people that they think may uh, snitch on them that won't go along with the agenda, that will stick to their morals and things like that. Who have been problematic for these agencies in the past, you know, even relatively recent not even in, back in the 1980s, but you take, you know, for example, the FBI investigation into the anthrax attacks, you have the lead investigator uh, later turn a whistleblower and denounce the whole thing as an elaborate uh, and very nefarious cover-up operation aimed at pinning it um, on Bruce Ivins, who uh, was in fact innocent and, and obfuscating the trail of uh, the real culprits and all of the stuff. Um you know, I mean, the, this is obviously a problem that they've been trying to solve for a long time. Uh, DHS and a lot of these other agencies have openly said in, in the past year and a half or so uh, that they have, in, in I guess, in the lead up to the war on quote unquote domestic terror, um, have, have stepped these up to a significant degree. What type of insider threats are they looking for? Uh, you know, so I think, uh, you know, they've used that to sort of consolidate control over um you know, the, the types of people that work in these uh, in, in so-called investigative agencies uh, in the U.S. And of course, uh, we have a lot of recurring uh, figures, you know, pop up in, in terms of being attorney general. You have like William Barr, for example, who was head of the Department of Justice when uh, the Finders was covered up, the Franklin scandal was covered up, promise, Iran-Contra. He covered all of those up on, for the George H.W. Bush administration when he was attorney general. The first time he returns uh, under Trump and, of course, uh, you know, when the Epstein, uh, Epstein uh, second Epstein arrest takes place, um, you know, I think I think that's pretty, um, pretty significant. You know, they um, have made major efforts, uh, I guess I would argue, to use uh, the advance in technology, among other things, uh, to prevent this type of information from coming out. But my assessment with the Epstein case is very similar to yours with the finders. 
you know, there's no real accountability here. Um, and so why would these agencies stop what they're doing? Right. So when we have, you know, something like this, the church committee investigating CIA crimes, you know, some of this was brought out to the press uh, and into the general public. And it was uh, embarrassing, right, for uh, the CIA. But that was, the, you know, the extent of the damage uh, for them, really. Uh, no arrests. Uh, it wasn't shut down. It wasn't defunded. The house wasn't cleaned out or anything like that. Um, a lot of the documents they were trying to hide from the church committee, they successfully hid, um, among other things. So why would those activities in the 70s um, uh, stop if they were of interest to the CIA and their uh, activities and uh, the interest of, of those uh, they, they, they tend to serve? Um, you know, uh, by doing these activities and the different, you know, agendas and, and, and programs that they've had for a long time. Uh, you know, so I think it's, uh, it's definitely, I think that's why talking about cases like this is just so important because, um, you know, the, the extent of the cover up and the extent of the crimes are very relevant, uh, because we don't know how, bad this was then and we don't know how bad it's gotten um you know i would argue in the and i've said this before with interviews um about uh jeffrey epstein that there were likely many different jeffrey epsteins working for intelligence in the same period and uh you know epstein was the one that got caught mainstream media um has attempted to write the narrative as oh this is just an isolated case it was one naughty billionaire and now he's dead nothing to worry about and are even attempting to you know <laughs> essentially absolve working to absolve uh Ghislaine maxwell in the press and stuff like this it's honestly uh sick and they're <laughs> to a large extent um getting away with it so i really appreciate um, the attention that you gave to this case uh, and your and your courage in reporting it, it's definitely hard material to stomach. Thank you. Yeah, I agree. And I think, um, you know, for for those who are in law enforcement who look at this and say, well, like Martinez, who say basically, look, there's never going to be prosecution, so why bother talking about it? I give up. And I will say also that, you know, as you mentioned about, uh, you know, people, People that are genuine, or people that are that have credibility and integrity, kind of being either punished, uh, you know, or shut out of things by the intelligence apparatus. I think that's exactly, uh, you know, Martinez is a great example of that. He told the truth, and he was severely punished for it. You know, his career was ruined. It's a long story, but basically, he, um, you know, he did not do well after this case uh, occurred. So I think, despite all of that, and despite that being the reality you see across these different scandals with the Franklin scandal, the, with the Franklin scandal, the only people that were prosecuted and convicted or, you know, put in prison in res, in response to the whole thing were the, were, was the victim, um, Alicia yeah. Owen, you know, so it's like, it's really, unfortunately, that when these scandals are real and genuine, that's exactly what you see. And so I think, though, that speaking about them is incredibly important, because, you know, not to quote Caitlin Johnstone, but it's all about narrative control, you know? And so I think that the more that people can really give a clear eyed look uh, at these scandals, the uh, less effective narrative control can be about the, the extent and the historical reach of the, the evils of the intelligence agencies and the fact that they have had no accountability and that we have to assume that they're still doing these types of things. Um, so I do think it's important as just as a journalist, I believe that even if you um, you can't get legal, uh, you know, justice for these types of situations, that there is something transformative in airing this type of information and having, um, you know, not only 
just not people simply just hearing about it, but understanding our real history is so important. So yeah, um, I, I, I totally really appreciate your work yeah, on it too, on thanks. Epstein and related scandals. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I, I totally agree because I think especially now it's really important to do credible reporting on this type of stuff, uh, really to reclaim uh, the facts of the matter from obvious psyops like QAnon, uh, which I think, uh, you know, in right. addition to their other uh, purposes were designed to just discredit any talk of um, this type of activity taking uh, place in connection with intelligence agencies or powerful politicians um, and in the elite in general. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, as, as you've laid out here and I've laid out in, in my Epstein series and, and some other work, and as you've laid out in some of your other work, you know, it's very obvious this type of activity has taken place. It's very likely it continues uh, to take place. And, you know, I, I think, you know, these obvious psyops, disinformation psyops like QAnon uh, know that that upsets people, the fact that this has happened and are trying to uh, discredit the issue entirely. So it's very important to have... Um, credible, well-sourced and documented reporting um, on the matter so that people can realize, uh, you know, ex exactly what's going on. And so, you know, this type of uh, these type of documented cases don't become relegated to, uh, you know, being historically associated with uh, QAnon claims uh, made by the MyPillow guy and Trump's going to, you know, be president by the end of the year and all this stuff because there, there have been efforts uh, to essentially link uh, these these cases and things like that to, uh, you know, the, those sort of movements. I think you um, mentioned in one of your pieces how really the only, uh, I guess you could say, like mainstream uh, outlet to have covered uh, the the Finder scandal recently uh, was Vice. And in doing so, they essentially dismissed the whole thing as a crazy conspiracy theory, sort of treating it like QAnon. Yeah, no, they, they basically, they literally, I thought their title was incredible. They called the Finders case the ground zero for Pizzagate and QAnon. There is no way you could more directly try to dismiss it with a few words than to try to, to frame it in that way. Uh, and I think that, unfortunately, that that's the problem as well with the fact that the media in, in the Finders case, you know, they sensationalized the ritual abuse claims as almost like the bar by which the case was legitimate or not. And then so any other allegations, allegations of the child trafficking, of abuse, of CIA involvement, all of that was kind of dismissed along with the ritual abuse aspect of it, um, especially as the quote unquote satanic panic -ish, uh, era came to an end and you had a, a backlash against it. I mean, in a larger context, you had the False Memory Syndrome Foundation, which is a whole other story in itself coming to the fore and really discrediting a lot of victims who, um, you know, I would say were legitimate. And I mean, the false memory syndrome itself was never put into the DSM. It's completely bunk. The foundation's now dissolved, but it did a lot of damage. So th that would be another example of, of a different route in which, you know, th these types of allegations were dismissed back then. I completely agree that QAnon has, has had the effect of just making any reporting on this, um, again, radioactive to deal with. Um, and, and that's a huge shame because for any, um, you know, people who have experienced this, especially as young children, it means that they're suffering the trauma of not only going through it, but then being unable to speak about it or unable to have it validated by any, anything other than that type of ridiculous, um, you know, uh, yeah, sci I'd have to agree and just call it a psyop. And I think that it speaks to intelligence agencies wising up to the fact that they can't just control a narrative from the top down via the corporate press. They're also having to cede 
psyops and disinformation from alternative media unfortunately and so there's it's a self-reinforcing binary where you have okay well cnn said it so it must be a lie and um you know QAnon said it so it must be true for some people and then the complete opposite for other people who have you know the you know msnbc type mindset um one other thing that i wanted to bring up uh earlier and this is in a little bit in relation to the whole um obfuscation of of these types of activities is something that uh, I I mentioned earlier, I'm reading The Chaos by Tom O'Neill. And one thing that he brought up that was new to me was the fact that there are documents uh, basically recorded that that he discovered from Dr. Uh, Louis Joy Long West that suggests that the MKUltra program itself was a lot more successful than publicly was acknowledged. I mean, publicly, the MKUltra program was kind of like laughed at, like, oh, what a silly Cold War ridiculous attempt. Um, it was you know, officially ended and all of that. Uh, but what he shows is that the, the, the program itself, the experiments that were taking place were far more successful. And that, I think, has a lot of implications for these, these types of activities because it would suggest that the techniques that they were learning about in the 50s and 60s would be something that they would still be implementing rather than something that they were simply discarding as, oh, that was a bunk, uh, you know, a dead end, a failed experiment. Yeah, so. and, and regarding MKUltra, um, you know, the fact that they were dismissing it as, as like, silliness is, is very disturbing when you consider the fact that the document, some of the documented techniques known to have been used by the CIA in that period uh, when it was it confirmed to have been uh, operational as a program involved essentially the torture and excessive drugging of children, um, uh, you know, just violating uh, them and, and numerous uh, from numerous different angles. So to sort of dismiss that as hee hee, the CIA is so silly um, is is gross and obviously in, in service to uh, covering up um, this type of nefarious activity. Um, so. Uh, yeah, but what what can we expect from from <laughs> from these types anymore? You know, uh, whether it's Vice News or uh, you know careerist politicians or careerist journalists, it seems to be um, a running theme. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, we have covered a lot, uh, including a lot of very disturbing, but, you know, I would argue very credible material. Uh, thank you for covering this case in such a uh, well-sourced, uh, objective way. I think uh, people should definitely go to Mint Press News and look for uh, your pieces on the finders. Uh, and as you mentioned earlier, it sounds like you're going to have more pieces coming out. So I will definitely uh, be looking for those. So um, as we wrap up here, um, if you wouldn't mind letting people know where they can follow um, your work in addition to, uh, you know, uh, you contributing to Mint Press News as well as how they can support your work. Sure. Yeah, I, I, you can find my work, as, as Whitney says, on Mint Press. You can also find some of my work at Consortium News. And as she mentioned in the introduction, I did have some work on in uh, historical intelligence-linked uh, child abuse cases. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Elizabeth, L-E-A-V-O-S. You can also uh, support me on Patreon under the same name. And other than that, um, you know, I'm just co-hosting CN Live and we've been covering the Assange case recently. So if you look us up, that's what you'll find. Um, I really appreciate you having me on. And I, I really am glad that there are multiple journalists out there in the independent press who are looking at these things, as you said, with a, a, a clear mind and an objective lens and not something where we're trying to um, hype it in order to sensationalize or dismiss it. I think that that's, you know, despite all the censorship, 
I'm really appreciative that there are independent journalists out there covering this. So thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Thanks to everyone uh, for listening. Uh, We probably in the next podcast won't be covering topics as intense, but uh, sometime in the next month, I do plan to have Nick Bryant on, who we mentioned a couple of times, author of The Franklin Scandal, um, and also the person who originally published uh, the original Jeffrey Epstein uh, Black Book at Gawker, among other things, will definitely be an interesting conversation there. Um, So look, uh, you may look forward to that um, if you're interested in this topic or not, if you are not. Uh, But either way, um, thank you for uh, following. And if you are a supporter supporting this podcast, uh, like all of Unlimited Hangouts podcasts, uh, this will be uh, exclusive to supporters for the first couple days. And then, of course, it's public to everyone. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so on rockfin.com, R-O-K-F-I-N. Dot com, or you can sub, uh, subscribe um, and get the same access uh, through unlimitedhangout.com by going and clicking on the support us tab. And with that being said, thanks so much uh, for tuning in and catch you all next time. <laughs>